I want you to imagine something with me if you can. I want you to imagine being given a command from the living God and not obeying it. I want you to, if you can, imagine being told by God himself what to do and how to do it and when to do it and not doing it. I want you to imagine receiving a personal word from God to you and ignoring it. It's not hard to imagine at all, is it? We don't need to imagine it. We've most likely done it today. We most likely did it yesterday and we'll most likely do it tomorrow. Our difficulty, sadly, is not in imagining what it must be like to disobey the word of the Lord God. Our difficulty is in appreciating the seriousness of it. We have a default setting within us, really, that minimizes our disobedience to the word of God, that excuses it, that explains it away. And it's a terrible deception. To be given a command, an instruction, a word from the living Lord God and to ignore it, to disregard it, to disobey it is an appalling and horrific and dangerous thing to do. And that's revealed very clearly for us in our passage today. Today as we read this passage already we've had the chance to observe disobedience to the Lord God. We've able to observe its impact on the disobedient and its impact even on God himself. And really, it's a terrible chapter. It's a very dark chapter. It's a chapter that cries out for obedience. So make sure you have that bit of the Bible open in front of you in chapter 15 and the outline of our talks on the inside of your bulletin. And let's pray and ask God to help us to deal well with this very dark chapter of his word heavenly father uh, perhaps already as we've uh, had this word read to us there are things about it that trouble us perhaps already father we're uncertain about things in it and it's simply our prayer father you would help us to understand the truth of it and that having understood that truth we would respond rightly it's in jesus name we pray Amen. Point one in your outline, and hopefully you might remember that we left uh, 1 Samuel last time with a warning resonating in the air. It was a warning from the prophet Samuel to the whole people of Israel and their newly crowned king Saul. Let me remind you of the warning. If you jump back with me to chapter 12 and verse 14, we can read it together. Chapter 12 and verse 14. Here it is, the words of Samuel to the people of Israel and their newly crowned king Saul. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your father's. There's the call to obedience. In particular, it's Samuel's call for King Saul 
to be obedient. And it's that call which is really the background, the important background to our passage today. And you can hear that call really almost repeated behind the words of verse 1 of chapter 15. Chapter 1, uh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 15. Listen to the call again in a sense. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. That sentence really is a, is a great summary of what human kingship in Israel ought to have been. What human kingship in Israel ought to have been. Can you see it? Although Saul is the king, it is the Lord who rules over him by his word through his prophet. The Lord chose him as king to rule over the Lord's people by obeying the Lord's word. And Saul's responsibility literally was to listen to the sounds of the words of God. To listen to the sounds of the words of God. Because you know what? The great truth of the Bible is that the true and living God is a speaking God. He speaks words to his people. And so therefore, it's no surprise to discover in the Bible that his people therefore must be a listening people, a trusting people, an obeying people. And therefore, the king over them must especially be a listening, trusting, obedient king. That's how it should have worked. Samuel came to Saul with words from the Lord, words for him to listen to. And they were hard words. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. They are the words from the Lord God that Saul was to listen to, to hear and to obey. And they are hard words, aren't they? It would be a fairly unfeeling person, I would think, who could read verses 2 and 3 and not be at least a little bit disturbed by these words from the Lord God. They're hard words. And we shouldn't minimise them. And we shouldn't try and hide from that disturbing feeling, perhaps, that we feel. We've seen already in our journey through 1 Samuel that the Lord is incomparably holy. That all who oppose him will be shattered. That he judges the ends of the earth from heaven. We've seen that already. And here in these very hard words, he speaks words of judgment. Weighty words of judgment against the Amalekite people and we need to note friends that the Lord hasn't just selected the Amalekites randomly this is not some sort of whim of God it is punishment it is judgment it is just in fact the Amalekites had a long history of attacking the Israelites and therefore attacking the Lord God dating way back to when they'd left Egypt and you can read about it in Exodus 
chapter 17. Jot that down and look at it later. It's in Exodus chapter 17. It's the famous battle, really, with Moses holding up his staff. Um, And every time the staff was held up, the Israelites would win. But every time it lowered, they were losing. And then Aaron and Hur ended up holding up Moses' tired arms until the battle was over. And it was the, the end of that battle in Exodus 17 that the Lord told Moses to write down on a scroll that the Lord's intention was to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And much later, Moses, when he was talking to the next generation of Israelites who were just about to enter the promised land, he remembered it all like this. It's from Deuteronomy 25. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 25. Moses said this, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, They met you on your journey and they cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And in fact, if you were to keep reading the Bible from then, you'd get to the book of Judges and you discover in the book of Judges it records a number of further times when the Amalekites continued to be hostile and wicked to the Israelites. And it's the wickedness of the Amalekites that has attracted the just and holy judgment of the Lord God. And perhaps the reason it's taken so long for his judgment to fall, maybe that's due to the Lord's grace in giving the Amalekite people time to repent. But that time has now ended. And the Lord appoints his king Saul to be his instrument of judgment, holy, just judgment. The Amalekites are, be, are to be totally destroyed. And as hard as that is, as disturbing as that is, we must appreciate that the Lord is not to be taken lightly and his judgment is to be feared. If we read these verses and we are disturbed by the seriousness of the judgment of the Lord God, that is a right response. Because we thought about a few weeks ago, didn't we? It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, please do not find yourselves on the wrong side of the Lord's judgment. The Lord's words to be obeyed have been spoken. And now the spotlight of the passage turns to Saul and his response. Point two on your outline in verse four. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at uh, Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. And so the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. It's a good start, isn't it? Saul begins well. Before he attacks the Amalekites, he makes sure that he will not go beyond the word of the Lord. Only the Amalekites are to be attacked, not the innocent Kenites. They are spared. It's a good start. It's a promising start. But sadly, our hopes for Saul are soon dashed. Verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. 
But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle and the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Well, if you're thinking clearly, it was when I reached verse 8 that the warning light should have begun flashing wildly for you. Did it? The Lord's command, remember, very clear, disturbing but clear, was to destroy everything. And in fact, in case we missed that command back in verse 3, did you notice in the verses I just read there in 7, seven 8 and 9, the word destroyed was repeated for, for us three times by the narrator. Saul's disobedience is being clearly portrayed for us here. We're not to miss it. Rather than destroy the king, uh, Agag, he took him alive, although his people he destroyed. In fact, did you notice there? They did destroy everything, everything that was weak and despised, that is. But the king and the best of the sheep and the best of the cattle and the fat calves and lambs, they didn't destroy those. And our warning light should be flashing. Well, I reckon we need to admit that along with the warning lights, at least a bit of us is probably feeling sympathy with Saul. We sort of want to agree, yeah, look, he's done the wrong thing. He deserves to be punished. We want to, we want to support the party line, but there's a nagging doubt, a nagging bit of sympathy for Saul, I think, in us, isn't there? I mean, it was a fairly harsh command. It's not as if he completely disobeyed it. I mean, what was the point of destroying everything? Surely it made sense to spare the best of the livestock. I mean, it's not as if they could fight. What a waste to destroy everything. That was just cruel, surely. I think that Saul can easily attract our sympathy, and we need to admit that. And we need to own up to the fact that the reason that we have sympathy for Saul is that we'd prefer it if disobedience to God wasn't that important. We want to lower the bar for Saul because we want to lower the bar for ourselves. We need to keep that in mind as we continue to read. Because although we might be slow to condemn Saul, it's immediately clear just how desperate the situation is. Verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Folks, I reckon that is a stunning statement from the Lord, don't you think? He was grieved by Saul's disobedience. The Lord God, incomparably holy, was grieved that he had made Saul king. He regretted that he made Saul king. Sometimes people, when reading these verses, find it stunning that the Lord should regret anything. Isn't he sovereign? Didn't he know that Saul would act in just exactly that sort of way? And while those things are true, surely we ought to be more stunned by how affected the Lord is by Saul's disobedience. Because clearly the Lord is not some sort of cold, distant, impartial observer to these things. He is personally involved in these things. He is affected. Saul's disobedience caused him great sorrow, great grief. In fact, the statement there in verse 11 might even remind you of another, a very similar statement about the Lord God much earlier in the Bible. Way, way back in Genesis and chapter 6, we could read this. 
The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had, begun, had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Folks, we need to understand this morning that to disobey God's word is to disobey him and it is always personal. Because I think sometimes we deceive ourselves by thinking that we can disobey the word of God without sort of impacting God himself. We sort of think there's some sort of triangle and here I am on one corner and there God is over on that corner and, and there is his word over there. And if I disobey his word, that's bad, but it's not as if my relationship with God is affected because it's sort of different. But it's not like that at all. There's no triangle, there's a, a straight line if you like. To disobey God's word is to disobey him and it breaks his heart. It causes him great grief because, of course, his word to us is good. It's kind. It's given in love. It's for our benefit and it brings blessing to his people. But to disobey his word is always to choose the lesser path and so to dishonor God. And we need to own up to the fact that disobedience to God is personal. And we can see how personal it is in verse 11, can't we? Saul, in disobeying the word of the Lord, see how the Lord describes it? He has turned away from me. And he was the king. And the Lord's response to Saul's turning away was precisely the same response way back in Genesis chapter 6 to the wickedness of the whole of humanity. He grieved. He grieved that he had made Saul king. That's such an important truth in this chapter that it's repeated at the very close of the chapter. The very last thing we read in this chapter is that because of his disobedience, the Lord grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. We need to grasp that. Saul, uh, Samuel sorry, understood the significance of it, didn't he? He spent all that night, we're told, in verse 11, crying out to the Lord in deep distress and trouble and even anger. For Samuel remembered, of course, the warning that he had delivered to Saul and delivered to Israel about the consequences of such disobedience. And so it's after a sleepless night, a terrible night for Samuel, I'm sure, that Samuel goes to confront Saul. And it's in the confrontation that we see just how, how terribly self-deceiving sin is. Verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Well, if you've got some warning lights flashing, they should be flashing even faster and brighter now, I'd reckon. A monument in his own honor. Could there be a starker contrast to the Lord's grief and Samuel's despair? In fact, you know what? Way back in that book of Exodus, when under Moses, the Israelites eventually defeated the Amalekites, you know what Moses did? He built an altar and he called it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Saul, after disobeying the Lord, builds a monument in his own honor. He seems oblivious to what has happened. And that's confirmed in his conversation with Samuel. Verse 13, 
When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. There's the self-deception of sin. Let me tell you, folks, if you have a guilt-free conscience, that is no guarantee of innocence, is it? A guilt-free conscience, that's no guarantee of innocence. Sin is inherently deceitful. Inherently, we are self-deceived by it. We are easily deceived by our own sin. Not only does Saul think he is innocent, he actually seems convinced that he fully obeyed the word of the Lord. It's incredible, isn't it? That, of course, friends, is why we need the word of God. For it's the word of God that judges the attitudes and thoughts of our hearts. The self-deceived person is the person who doesn't read the word of God prayerfully and humbly. And the word of God is born here by the prophet Samuel. Verse 14. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? The evidence of your disobedience is everywhere, Saul. It's all around me. You failed to listen to the sounds of the words of God. And now all I can hear is the sounds of your disobedience. There is the opportunity for Saul to admit his wrongdoing. But instead he deceitfully passes the blame. Verse 15, Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Folks, can you hear the echo? Can you hear the echo down through the ages? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's the desperate, deceived buck passing of Adam way back in the Garden of Eden. It's echoed there in Saul's words, isn't it? And we can follow the echo all the way down to even ourselves, can't we? Even ourselves. We even do it with God. There are extenuating circumstances. The devil made me do it. I was feeling down. It was because of... It was because of... But our excuses are as empty as Adam's and as empty as Saul's. I mean, if you glance back to verses 7, 8, 9, you can see how the narrator goes out of his way to point out it was Saul who took King Agag live. It was alive. It was Saul who spared the best of the stock. It was Saul. There's no buck passing. Desperately, Saul even tries to give a religious spin to his disobedience. I suspect we're pretty good at that. The cattle were only spared so as to sacrifice, you know. It's desperate, isn't it? It's pathetic, but it is oh so believable because so much of Saul's response resonates with us, if we're honest. But Samuel had enough. Verse 16, stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And maybe foolishly, Saul replies, tell me. And Samuel said there in verse 17, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Why, Saul? Why? Why did you not obey? Why did you do evil in the eyes of the Lord? It's a terrible summary of the tragedy of Saul's disobedience. He was the Lord's anointed 
He was given a clear, unambiguous word from the Lord and he disobeyed. Saul wanted to blame the people, but but Samuel's reply focuses back on on Saul, doesn't it? Why did you not obey? Saul's pathetic attempt to create a religious excuse, blown away. You pounced on the plunder, Saul. Why did you do evil in the eyes of the Lord? There is the conviction of the word of God. And Saul's self-deception runs deep, doesn't it? His heart seems hardened by the deceitfulness of his own sin. And in verses 20 and 21, he repeats his pathetic, deceived defense. But it's all to no avail. Because remember what we discovered way back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, the Lord is a God who knows. The Lord is a God who weighs our deeds. The Lord knows Saul. He weighs his deeds and he rejects him as his king. Point three and verse 22. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Friends, what the Lord requires, it's very simple. Obedience. Obeying his voice. Heeding his word. God speaks. We listen. We trust. We obey. If God speaks a word to us and we fail to listen, if we fail to trust, If we fail to obey, that is rebellion, that is arrogance, that is to turn away from the true and living God and to give ourselves to someone or something other than him, less than him. It is is idolatry. It is to reject the Lord himself. And that is what Saul had done. Though he was the Lord's anointed, he rejected the Lord. And so the Lord rejected him. 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people and I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Saul repents, or he seems to, but Samuel's reaction indicates that it wasn't genuine. Verse 26, Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. That must have been a dramatic scene, I'd reckon. Saul's time as the Lord's anointed is over. The kingdom had literally been torn from him. It was the Lord, the glory of Israel's settled decision. The one who grieved the sin of Saul would not go back on his plans and promises. In fact, at the close of the chapter, we're told that from this day onwards, 
until the day Samuel died, he never saw Saul again. The Lord had decided to give his kingdom to another, someone better than Saul. Who this other is and what makes him better, we'll need to keep reading. Come back next week. You could even read it for yourself. But the events of these chapter, you know, they throw up some pretty important things for us to ponder carefully. The events of this chapter actually throw, throw up some pretty big questions for us to answer. For the Lord, you see, requires obedience in his people and we are disobedient. The very things we see in the life of Saul, we see it in ourselves. The same arrogance, the same rebellion, the same deception, the same denial. And the Lord requires an obedient king. And we need an obedient king to lead us. But how could any human king satisfy such a requirement? Certainly none of the kings who followed Saul could. And so it's a dark chapter, this one, isn't it? Darkened by the power of sin. But of course, it's the darkness of this chapter that just serves to highlight the brilliance and the shining of the glory of Jesus all the more clearly, don't you think? This chapter cries out for obedience, for an obedient king. And it's Jesus alone who answers the call. Jesus who said in John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus, over whom the Father declared, this is my son, this is my king, this is the anointed one whom I love, with him I am well pleased. This is the Jesus who was even prepared to lay down his own life at the command of his father. In John chapter 10, he spoke these words, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This is the command I received from my father. This is the Jesus, folks, who on the very eve of his most terrible death prayed, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will what you will that was the heartbeat of jesus the will of the father and so friends jesus was obedient even to death even to death on a cross to save his disobedient people and whereas saul was rejected for his disobedience god has exalted jesus to the highest place and has given him, given him the name above every name, a name at which every knee should bow, a name that every tongue should confess, Jesus Christ, Lord. A name, friends, you know what? It's a name that can even save disobedient people like us. Because, you see, because of the obedience of Jesus, he has become the source of salvation even for you and even for me. Through faith in him, Jesus rescues us from the dominion of darkness and brings us into his kingdom of righteousness. Through faith in Jesus, 
His righteousness, his obedience becomes ours. We are forgiven. We are justified. And you know what? As rescued members of his kingdom, obedience can become even a possibility for us. Because you know what? As our king, Jesus grants us his spirit, the spirit of obedience, so that we might live out the new life that he has granted us, a life free from the penalty of sin, a life free from the ruling power of sin, a life of liberty, a life serving him with joy. Brothers and sisters, all this is ours because we have an obedient king, Christ Jesus. So because of that, because of that, if you belong to Jesus, see to it, won't you? See to it, won't you, that none of us has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We need to encourage each other in obedience to the word of God. We need to read it together. We need to pray through it together. We need to hold each other accountable to it so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to stop making excuses for ourselves and for each other. We need to have a zero tolerance policy on disobeying the word of God. Because the Lord's great delight, his great delight is in his people hearing and trusting and obeying his word. And we want to bring him delight, don't we? Yes, we want to bring delight to our father who has saved us. And as terrible as it is to consider grieving the Lord through our disobedience, how wonderful that through obedience we have the opportunity to bring him delight. And we can solely because of our obedient king, the Lord's anointed, Christ Jesus. So let's be done with sin and let's live for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you delight in obedience to your word. We know that you delight when your people heed your word. And Father, we know the grief that rebellion and arrogance and idolatry causes you. And Father, we are so thankful for the obedience of of Jesus. So grateful, Father, that through his obedience we might be forgiven. So grateful, Father, for even the gift of his spirit, the spirit of obedience, the Holy Spirit. Father, we are sorry for the way that we minimize our disobedience to your word. We're sorry, Father, for our pathetic excuses, for our pathetic self-denial. Father, we want to be people who are obedient, who hear your word, who trust your word, who obey your word. And we so much need your help. We thank you for your patience. 
We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.